in these first three Sundays of December, I, I wanted to walk you through the, the underneath theology of the genealogy. And so today I'd like to ask you to help me picture this visually. Let's, let's go to the third row on my right over here for a moment, which would be Travis and his family. I'm going to ask you if you would to hold this. Okay, Travis, you guys want to hold that in. And then if we could, I'm going to ask that we take this. You really can't see it in a big crowd, but this is a red like yarn. Let's stretch this straight across the room to the other side and I'm not sure the third row is, maybe Adam over there somewhere. Can we just stretch this across the room? In fact, could you guys do this for me? Yeah, just kind of keep going. It should be enough. If it gets tangled, just help yourself. Maybe reach back or reach forward. I want to make a straight line across the room using this uh, red yarn, all right? This is representing the straight line of Christ that started with Abraham and ends with Christ. In fact, while they're doing that, let me just kind of show you um, how the sections of our auditorium will represent the sections of Matthew 1, okay? Do you recall that there are 42 names mentioned between verse 2 and verse 16? And they're divided into three sections, 14 names each. So we could say this, that this section here represents the first 14 names, these two middle sections would represent the second set of 14 names. And this far section to my left, these two will represent the last section of 14 names. Say, Todd, what did they represent? Well, we saw in week one that the first 14 names really symbolized and illustrated, represented God's saving power, his grace, his sovereign call upon people's life to trust him and to follow him. Week two was God's preserving power. And what do we see now in week three in this, in this last section of 14 names? Well, let's first of all ask, where's the red cord? Are we, are we stretched over enough to Who has it on the end? All right, great. Lozada family's got it. Just hold it tight. Can you, can, if you're holding, can you hold it up above your head just across the whole line? Let's see it. Okay, about the highest. Some of you had your hands up in church in a while. That's a, amen. Praise the Lord, right? Good job, guys. That's my trick. I'm kidding you. Okay, great, we've got it. Okay, so just hold it right there as we illustrate today what's going on in the three sections of the line of Christ that runs through the Old Testament. Your Bibles now are open to Matthew 1. We're gonna begin in verse 12. This would be the third section of 14 names. So let's see what we'd learn that would add to understanding God's sovereign grace and God's preserving power. What do we learn in this last section? Let's tackle it. Here are probably the 14 hardest names among the 42 to get through. We'll test ourselves. You ready? Matthew 1, verse 12. The Bible says that after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotiel, and Sheotiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Ah, there's the end we've been waiting for. Now verse 17 provides a summary for us. So all the generations... 
From Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So do you see our sections here? Section one, there were how many? 14 generations, representing, symbolizing, illustrating God's sovereign grace. Let me pause there and say this to you. Just as God has always been calling people to himself, extending his gospel call to all, so he is today, by the way. And I want to encourage you, as you leave today, you'll be getting a, a simple card. If you haven't got one already, it's called the Who's Your One card. All of you here last week should have picked one up. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you, take one. And we're just asking this coming year that you pray for and, and, and work and relate and ask God to see, uh, see him save one person you're praying for that's not a Christian yet. And there's a card back there. Take the card. You can write the name on both sides. You can just put the first name if you like. Perfect. And either January 5th or January 12th, this coming next year, just turn in the perforated part. We'll collect all those. We'll post them in our office in a, in a kind of a secure place. And we will join you in just praying for these hundreds of people who have yet to become believers. That they would hear God's call, his sovereign grace. They would see the beauty of the gospel and they would be saved. Amen. So, so just as God was doing in the first section through those 14 names of all kinds of people, both Jew and Gentile, God is still calling today. And let's join him in his effort to see folks from every nation come to his throne. So that'll be as you leave. Be sure to take, take that. Then the next 14 was God's preserving power through Israel's demise. And I should say more technically, Judah's demise down to where they were put into captivity. We saw God still holding on to his people, to that remnant. He was faithful to his name even when they weren't. Amen. So all along the way, we've seen God do incredible things. And now on these last 14 names, what is it that we see underneath these ones that we can hardly pronounce? Let's be frank. We know very little about most of these names. In fact, I would, I'd venture to say this. In section one, God's sovereign grace, you probably knew a number of those names, the patriarchs. Even if you're new to church, maybe you're just a new believer. Maybe you're not even a Christian yet. You probably have heard of things like Abraham or David, right? You're kind of familiar. In the middle section, it's less familiar, but you've probably still heard of some of them like Solomon. Maybe you've heard the name Hezekiah at times. So we come to the last section. I mean, very few of us know many of these names. You kind of see a couple as we near the end, don't you? Like, well, I've heard of Jacob and yeah, Joseph for sure. And I get the last one, right? And so here you look at the family tree of Jesus. Some names familiar, some aren't. But what's, what's going on here, remember, is not just chronology. While that's important to establish Christ's rightful place on the throne, there's more going on here than just a list of names. It's more than chronology. It's very good theology. And that's what we're seeing underneath all these 42 names. If you like a summary of this, I'd encourage you to go to my blog today. You can go to toddstyles.net. You can subscribe there as well. I kind of walk you through what's underneath all 42 names, not individually, but in these sections. It's been a, it'll be a good kind of reminder of how God is showing his character even in the chronology, okay? So when you come to the last 14, what do we see? Here's what I think is going on. Though we don't know much about most of these folks here, it seems like we know enough to understand that what God was doing is he's restoring his people back in the land and positioning them for the arrival of his son, all right? In fact, let me just show you a few names that you may recognize. Notice the, the Z name in verse 12, Zerubbabel. 
you may have recognized that one because he was pretty important in the rebuilding of the temple, the reestablishing of the worship. Remember, they came back from captivity. They land in the land. And so Nehemiah, Ezra, those were all men in Zerubbabel's time. And so they were important in establishing kind of, okay, we're back in the land, we're gonna worship God again. And though they didn't do it perfectly and though they had their ups and downs, they were now back in Jerusalem with the temple as God's people and they're awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. So that, that's kind of what's happening. After you get past the rubble, here's what I think may be true of most of these men. And, and I don't know this, by the way. This is not a fact. This is an opinion. So feel free to disagree. I've searched uh, different parts of historical literature. I've looked in different parts of the Bible. Most of these folks, after the Z-man, there's no record of them anywhere. We don't have any information about them. My guess is, my educated guess is, they may have been priests who served in the temple. That's an educated guess. I couldn't say I'm right, I couldn't say I'm wrong. But it, it would follow, maybe logically, that this is one of the things that some of them did. Now what's happening in this time frame is that um, God isn't speaking once Malachi gets through prophesying, okay? And Malachi is gonna be probably just a little bit after the time of Zerubbabel. So into verse 12, into 13, you're going to find that the Old Testament prophets end. Malachi, Haggai, uh, Zechariah, those are all the culminating prophecies. And so they're in the land. God's kind of winnowing them of their distractions. And he's trying to focus them on the arrival of Christ. So that's what's going on. And there's about a 400-year period in which God does not speak to his people, though they're in the land, living and, and um, worshiping, ups and downs still, but there's just nothing from the Lord over 400 years. And so they're called the 400 silent years. And can I say to you, I think as you read this last section, you get a picture name-wise of 400 silent years. We just don't know anything about these people, do we? But since this is a list really not about the people but about God, what do we know about God? What he's doing is he's, he's bringing his people back and he's focusing them, getting them ready and helping them anticipate the arrival of his son. So I would use the word restoring them. He's got them back in the land and now he's gathering them, pruning them, the remnants there. And God is restoring them. But watch this. I think what they were expecting was a physical restoration. Do you know that? In fact, let me make my point to you. I think for these 400 years, they're expecting things to go well physically again. Um, victories militarily, success economically. And I think you find this in what I call the, the big myths of the Gospels. That when Jesus did arrive and when he came, did they recognize him? No. Why? Because they were expecting something physical. Like, where is the kingdom that will drive out the Romans? Where are the military victories? Hey, where's the success and the prosperity? And Christ came as a suffering servant in his first coming. And they missed him. John 1, 12 says that he came into his own, but his own did not receive him. Why? Because he didn't come in the way they thought he should have. With physical, military, economic might and power. I think that started even back in these silent years when they were expecting some kind of physical restoration. But what God was actually doing was spiritually restoring his people for the arrival of his son. So here's how I'd summarize this last section 
about God's restoring power. It seems this third set of 14 names goes from exile to Jesus and illustrates God's singular purpose, namely the restoration of his people. Watch this last part now, through his son. Because where does the line end? The Lazadas are holding it, right? It ends with what name? Jesus Christ. This is very important. The genealogy start with Abraham, but they end in a person. They don't end in a place. They don't end with physical issues or or uh, things like that, they end in a person who's gonna reconcile sinners to God. In fact, let me just show you some things about the name of Christ in this section I think is quite intriguing. In verse 16, we see that um, he's called Jesus who was born, who was called Christ. Do you see that with me? That's a repeat of what's said in verse one, that this is the book of the genealogy of, say it with me, Jesus Christ. And then it's repeated again in verse 17 when it says that uh, he's called the Christ. Do you see that? So three times in these first 17 verses, we have a reference to the person that, that is the culminating end of all of God's restoration plans. This is all about Jesus Christ. He's called Jesus Christ. He's called Jesus who is called Christ. And then he's called the Christ. So all along the way, as this cord is going from Abraham all the way over to Christ, the point isn't the names on the list. The point is the last name on the list, Jesus the Christ. He is the person in whom God will restore, reconcile, and redeem his people. So I want you to notice a couple of things about this one called Jesus the Christ and about how he restores us and why he can restore us. Two Beautiful things to behold this morning about Jesus, okay? They're found in verse 16 and 17, the last two verses of this section. The first one's in verse 16, and it describes for us the uniqueness of Jesus as the end of God's restoration plan, his uniqueness, all right? I find this in verse 16 in which, watch this, it says that Jacob, the father of Joseph, who's the husband of Mary. Now, that's odd. Why? It's the first time we don't see the words, the father of. Go back to verse two, would you? It starts off, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And from there on, you have what? Father of, father of, father of, father of. Uh, we've got 41 of them, right? You get to verse 16 and suddenly it says, here's Joseph, the husband of Mary. Why is that? Because Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Jesus was the eternal son of God conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. And so it says he is the son of Mary in that sense, born of Mary, not of Joseph. And so this is a beautiful picture and an illustration and a statement of the virgin birth. Now notice what it says here. Jesus was born of Mary and he is called Christ. There's an interesting reference here, not only to the human man Jesus. Do you see that in their name Jesus? That's what he was named when he was born. But this phrase at the end says, who is called Christ? This means that Jesus wasn't first brought into existence at his birth, his human birth. It means that he's always been the eternal Christ. He's been the eternal son of God. So Jesus was brought forth into physical appearance at his birth, a virgin birth conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yes, but he had always existed with the father as the second person of the Godhead. That's a beautiful reference here to Christ's divinity as well as his humanity, his eternality. 
so, so in this way, he's unique. He's the only one ever born like this. This was important, church. Please listen very carefully. Because unless Christ, if he's not born of a virgin, then he's really just a better version of you. He's not your savior. He still has the sin nature. But by bypassing the Adamic sin nature, Jesus now qualifies as as the only one, the unique son of God, who can pay for the sins of mankind. Isn't that great news? In fact, let me just kind of dive a little deeper with you. How many of you love to quote John 3.16? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's typically how we say that. It's the King James translation. So if you're a little older, you may say it that way. Maybe you say a different way if you're younger. I don't know. But we often hear the words only begotten. Good translation, but the most technically precise definition of the phrase only begotten, which is in Greek, monogene, the most precise definition is the understanding that he's only one of a kind. So when we say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, here's what we're actually saying in the language of the New Testament. God so loved the world that he gave his only one of a kind son. And why is that true? Because he was virgin born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, missing the sin nature, and in doing so could die for the sins of man as fully man in flesh and yet as fully God without sin. Aren't you glad that Jesus sent the only one of a kind son to die for us? He's unique. He is Jesus who is called Christ and he's not Joseph's son. He's God's son born through Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth. Here's how Paul would describe this to Timothy in writing about the same concept, Christ's uniqueness, his uh, alone standing, his top of the pyramid, we'll call it. Paul would say this, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. Say it with me, church. The man Christ Jesus. See, in those four words, Paul says, here's a man born of a woman, but he's the eternal son of God, and he was named Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. Praise God, he's one of a kind, unique, the only savior of sinners. There's something else about Jesus that I want you to behold as well, and it's found in verse 17. Here, he's again called the Christ, but notice the definite article. You see that in verse 17? That after all the generations, it ends at the Christ. It's the first time we see this definite article, which singles him out. Watch this. Not just as unique, but now we see him as the ultimate end of all of God's restoration plan. So if you you trace the line from Abraham to Christ, it ends at Christ. And by the way, it ends at Christ. We're not waiting on another savior (laughs) There's not like, you know, Jesus 2.0 about to come, all right? This is the end of everything God had been promising, predicting. This is his restorative measure. It's a person, Jesus Christ. That's why it's called here the Christ. The word here is the Messiah, the long-awaited one. We sang about how Christ was to come and they were uh, the long-expected one. For hundreds of years, they had prophesied about Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. Well, this is where it was ending, and this was his arrival. 
I'd remind you there are over 300 prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. Over those hundreds of years, every single one fulfilled perfectly in the birth of Jesus the Christ. So all of God's promises, all of his predictions, all of his um, uh, redemption and restoration, they are fulfilled, they are seen. They're, They're culminated in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul would say it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I really love this verse because it, it sells for me. Uh, you know, is there something else to come? Are we waiting for someone else? Is there more to do? No, Jesus Christ is the ultimate and final fulfillment of everything God had been writing about in the Old Testament. Here's what Paul would say. For all the promises of God find their, what church? Yes, in him, speaking of Jesus. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate end of all of God's promises. Every bit of restoration, every bit of redemption that you're seeking, that you're needing, that I'm needing, that mankind needs, that sinners, every bit of a sinner's reconciliation is found in one person, the God-man, Jesus. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? Because otherwise you're saying, well, I've got to bring something to the table. What, what is there left for me to do? What have I got to merit or earn or acquire or achieve? And the answer is nothing. Jesus has done it all. He's the ultimate end of all of God's restorative and redemptive plans. This is where everything was pointing. In fact, here's how the writer of Hebrews would say it. He said that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Now this phrase comes after saying in verse one, That in times past, he spoke through prophets and in different ways. And then he says in verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the phrase he has spoken is a definitive final phrase. The language there is like, this is the the final ultimate expression of who God is. Don't you love the fact that Jesus is the revelation of God himself in human form to us? And so Jesus is not just the unique end of God's restoration, He's the ultimate end of restoration. That's why we ask you in song to behold him. He's the one that should have our attention. What the writer of Hebrews say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And so church, I just want to invite you, man, let's behold the beauty of Jesus this morning in all of his uniqueness, in all of his ultimateness. He is the end of what everything God's been doing. See, see, I remind you of something we say a lot at First Family. We're not the hero of the story. Amen? It's not about you. Now, it's for you, and we thank God for that, right? But it's not about you. The Bible is God's story about how he's revealing himself to a lost people and saving us through Jesus Christ, his son. God is the hero of the story. It's his story. It's his book. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate end of all of God's doings. Man, I love the way that Jesus stands as unique and ultimate. So it brings us to our big idea. These last 14 names, especially verse 16 and 17. What are we saying this morning? What's the big idea here? That really the straight line of God's plan woven throughout history is revealed in one person. Say it with me, church. Jesus Christ, who is God with us. We'll see this on Christmas Eve. But this is exactly what is said in verse 23 in the last set of verses. That a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So what was God doing along this, this scarlet thread through hundreds of years? He's revealing himself to us. He's giving himself to us through the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And that was the ultimate aim. That was the unique aim. This is how God restores people to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see something here because we say this is God's straight line, his singular purpose. That's true. But God's straight line and singular purpose ran over hundreds of years and through all kinds of messy situations. So I want you to do something with me. Where does the cord start? Right there with Travis and his family. So I'm gonna ask other folks now to get involved both behind the cord and in front of the cord, wherever it runs through. And can we just start weaving that piece of yarn all the way through different sections up behind it and down it? Can we make it, yes, a straight line in that it ends in one place, but can we weave it through hundreds of years? Let's start that, can we? I'll help you out a little bit. Let's take that, maybe Jay kind of grab it and pull it back a little bit. Maybe Terry can get a hand of it, maybe Monty or... Maybe the Beatty's back there. We'll run it across here to Kelly and Calvin. And just keep winding this cord all the way around, would you? I mean, I kind of see a, it's faint, but let's just see a red cord through every section. It may take a little time, but uh, we'll, we'll get this figured out. There we go. And there's plenty of yarn. Don't worry. We'll just keep feeding it. Okay, it's going back there. So Kelly, go ahead and take yours. John, that's good. Yeah, hand it back there to, to Larry and Christine. Be great. Grab it. Just, just If you're near, just grab it. That's fine. Scott might reach back there and grab a little bit, or Joe. We'll keep working across here because I want you to see the line of Christ, so to speak, as a straight line, singular in its purpose, yes, but how it's woven through hundreds of years of human history, different situations that are messy, encounters, even obstacles. We're getting there. Great. Okay, Jock, great job. You're just getting that up and down. Okay. Brandy, throw it back behind you a little bit. Brady, maybe grip him and grab it if you want. Yeah, just, just weave it throughout this whole room, would you? Now, while that's happening, just about the end, I want you to think about something. Listen very carefully, church. All ears and eyes right up here. Do you, do you see what God providentially and sovereignly orchestrated and oversaw? The singular purpose of his plan was that Jesus Christ would come, and he did that through hundreds of years and, a, and several messy situations uh, things that you'd say, man, how did, how did that work into God's plan? And it's beyond our understanding. But Matthew 1 shows us over 42 names, God weaving throughout human history his singular purpose to bring Christ to reveal himself to us in the incarnation, right? We see that. Watch this. If God can handle making sure his line is secure and singular over hundreds of years, I guarantee you he's got your brief 80 or 90 under control. He's got your life in the palm of his hand. I mean, we, we fret, don't we, about our brief ordained days here. I do sometimes. I wonder, well, does God know this? And can he handle that? But when I look at Matthew 1, wow, God handled the line that led to his son over hundreds of years through messes of kingdoms and situations and ended up securely and perfectly Restoring his people through his son, Jesus. God took care of that. And guess what? God will take care of you. He's got your life under his control. That's, I hope this simple illustration and really these last 14 names will show you that 
that God is worthy of your trust and that your confidence this morning will be raised. Your faith will be deepened. You'll not walk out of here wondering like, well, can I trust God? Oh, look at the red line that's woven throughout history that ends in a singular purpose, the coming of Christ, perfectly, accurately. Yes, you can trust God. So that's our big idea. I hope you see it not just I hear it not just verbal, I hope you see it visually, okay? Now, while you're holding the cord, you're thinking this through, let me just share with you what's the big doctrine underneath this. Because each week in Christmas, we've been bringing to you kind of the doctrine underneath these names. And by the way, I was thinking this week, I was sharing this with Julie. Uh, you know, the, the song we sing a lot, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? But we should change the words to that song. It should be, it's the most Doctrinal time of the year. You know why? Because I think Christmas and every season is doctrinal. Every one of them, I mean, every Sunday is theological, hopefully, as we study and learn and adore and behold Jesus and, and the Trinitarian God. But, but if a pastor and a people can't see doctrine at Christmas, man, we, we've got issues, people. I mean, it's just a beautiful time of the year to see so much of God's character just just unpacked. So like in that first week, God's unconditional election, his sovereign right to choose by his own grace and mercy and purpose. Second week, God's preserving power to keep us all the way to the end. So his hand of election, his hand of protection always around us. This week, God's restoring power to keep our attention and our focus on the arrival of his son. Now he's doing that as we wait for the second appearing of his son. So, so there's so much theology in this, in this third week. Here's what we're seeing. The doctrine of the incarnation and that first coming when God became a man. That's really the doctrine underneath this entire set of 14 names. As they were back in the land, being restored, waiting expectantly, what was about to happen was God was bringing everything to this culminating point where he would come in the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, and reveal in the most ultimate fashion what he was like. The literal word means enfleshing, incarnate. In means in, there's a big one there, and then the idea of carn means flesh. So it's the enfleshing of God. And here's the more theological definition. Take a picture of this, jot it down, it'll help you. It's the act whereby the eternal Son of God took to himself an additional nature, i.e. humanity, through the virgin birth, all right? That's the incarnation. And notice we're saying here that this is a, a moment in time, as Taylor mentioned, a holy moment in which Jesus was born, and so it's God, 100%, and man, 100%. Not a diffusing of either, but both residing in one person. That's the incarnation. The big word for that is called the hypostatic union. And reformers and church fathers fought over this at times, hundreds of years. It's theologically sound, orthodoxically strong, that two natures in one person, that was Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God and yet in human form with us. And that is exactly what it took to pay for the sins of those needing to reconcile to God. Because it couldn't just be a better version of you, Right? It had to be God. He's the only one that could pay the price against sin in a holy manner. 
And yet it had to be a man. It had to be an actual sacrifice, a lamb. And so when Christ came in bodily form named Jesus, John would say about him, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. So we have a human offering, a sacrifice, who is actually God himself. So the result of that is our sins can be paid for and mankind can be saved. Hallelujah, church, for the incarnation. That really just kind of opens up um, some other scriptures about this doctrine. I'll just read these to you briefly. This just kind of cements why our church stands on this so strong. This is a non-negotiable foundational doctrine for us. It goes to how and why we can be saved so we don't get to vote on this, all right? This is not up for grabs. This is solid, fundamental truth that we stand on. Here's Philippians 2, 5 through 8, in which it says that though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, so more of a kind of a timeline of the incarnation there. Happened in a moment. Tells you why it happened and how it happened. Here's John's words about this same doctrine. John 1.14. The word became flesh, lived or dwelt among us. The word there is tabernacled. So it kind of harkens back to the Old Testament when God was with them in the desert, in the tabernacle. Here he's saying the, now, the tabernacle now is Jesus Christ. That's how God is dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Aren't you glad that God came to you? Man, isn't it a, a, a beautiful thing to behold that you're not left trying to get to God? If that were the case, you would never make it. But God had a, an ultimate end game to his line. It was a person, Jesus Christ, and that is how men and women are reconciled to God. You see, I think it's very important that you understand that the, the incarnation, the doctrine underneath these last set of 14 names, it, it's so important to our salvation. Because it shows us that God came to us. In fact, biblical Christianity is the only, and I'll call it a system of belief. We'll use the word religion. You can use the word belief system. But biblical Christianity is the only one in which God moves on his own initiative towards man. In every other religion, guess what? You've got to make your move to God. Now, there's a varying forms of that. But they all come back to this essential principle. You've got to find a way there. You've got to be good enough, pay enough, you know, go through enough karma, however you want to call it. You've got to make the move. But in biblical Christianity, God of his own initiative, purpose, grace, and mercy comes to us. This is so important. Because see, church, listen very carefully. Before you were saved, you weren't just in a hole trying to get out of the hole of sin. You weren't down in a hole screaming, hey God, help me. And then God kind of reached his hand down and kind of said, okay, yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll give you a boost. You kind of climbed up with a few rocks and grabbed God's hand, he pulled you up. That's not what happened. In fact, God didn't see you in a hole and you were crying out for help and he sent you a ladder and you climbed up that ladder and said, man, I made it. That's not what happened either. In fact, I would say you weren't even in a hole. 
You were in a grave. You and I were six feet under spiritually. We had no way to even call out for help. The Bible says that we were dead in our sin and trespasses. And God in his own mercy and grace looked down upon dead sinners and came down to where we were. And watch this. And then he entered into that death with us. He went to the cross and there he died and gave his life as an ultimate sacrifice. The end of everything God had been promising. And in his death, he provided full satisfactory payment to all of God's demands. God then raised Jesus from the dead. Now watch this. And now Jesus comes to every one of us in our spiritual grave and he breathes life into us. And then suddenly when Jesus breathes life into us, we rise up. We're like, oh. And he takes us out of the grave. So it's far worse than just being in a hole needing a ladder, okay? It's far worse than just being in a deep hole hoping somebody hears you yell for help. You were in a deep grave. You were dead and God sent Jesus to enter into that death with you. He did. And now because he was raised, he breathes life into all who would believe. That's salvation. And none of that's possible without the incarnation. I'm so thankful God came to us. And may God prevent us from ever boasting or bragging that we found some ladder and climbed our way to him or that we yelled loud enough and he heard us. It was only God in his mercy who reached down into our grave of sin and through the work of Christ alone breathed his Holy Spirit's power upon our dead souls and brought us to life. And so we say all glory to God. Salvation belongs to him alone. And this is why this morning it's a wonderful thing to behold Jesus, isn't it? To see in these last few verses his uniqueness, his ultimateness. And to thank the Lord that any kind of restoration needed is through a person, Jesus Christ. I pray this Christmas you will behold him like never before and see the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.